Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The Word of God speaks to us. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, uh, happy 4th of July. Okay. (laughs) Not very excited about that. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, I thought you'd be excited to have a day off and blow stuff up. Um, so good morning. I don't think I said this earlier. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It's so good to have you. Fourth of July is super fun, not just because we have a day off, but I have a lot of my close friends live in the UK and they're pastors there in England and kind of around the UK area. And their perspective of Fourth of July is super funny. They're like, hey, you Americans, it's like, it's like uh, you know, you broke up with your girlfriend and you celebrate every year by blowing stuff up. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, that's what we're doing. So take that, Great Britain. Um, so enjoy grilling out, enjoy blowing stuff up. Hope, hopefully you'll stay safe and have a lot of fun. Uh, before we jump into the word, I want to say two things real fast. One is if you find yourself here today and you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know about any of this. I don't know about the stuff that we're singing, the stuff that we're praying, all this stuff. I'm really glad that you're with us today. You do not have to believe what we believe. You're welcome here. We want you here. Uh, your questions, though we don't always have all the answers, they don't scare us, and we want to process with you. So thanks for being with us this morning. It's a big deal. The second thing is that, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Jeff, but one of my best friends, one of our pastors, Jeff Nine, is in the house. Would you raise your hand, Jeff, so everybody can see? Um, the reason they're not standing in ovation clapping, uh, a lot of people, if you don't know Jeff, Jeff oversees our church planting and our strengthening uh, for, our, for our entire church as a whole. He's one of the most intelligent guys I know. He's got like the biggest heart. He's just such a good man. He's such a good pastor and he is on sabbatical. And so, man, we love you like crazy. You have blessed and benefited our church in ways that most people here don't know. So thank you for your sacrifice. I'm praying for you and Sherry and your whole family, that you get rest, you have a ton of fun, that you don't think about us at all, other than 
when you're here with us on Sundays. So, uh, man, if you think of Jeff and his family, pray for them. They're, they're living it up, hopefully, on sabbatical. So, all right, let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into Matthew 6. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the word. Thank you that we get to gather, to sing, to pray, to sit under the word together. And we're praying for more and more formation to happen, more and more restoring that the ways that the world is telling us a narrative, the ways that our own bent and distorted souls are telling us a narrative, the ways that the, the world is offering us a vision of the good life. We just say today, as your people, would you form us? Would you shape us? Would our vision of the good life be around your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And today, I just, I pray, would you teach us how to pray? Would you teach us how to pray? It's like when your disciples came to you and said, hey, we want to know how to pray. That's my prayer today. We want to know how to pray. And we're not asking that you uh, fast forward our sanctification. I'm just praying today that you would dial our prayer life up one degree that we would just grow a little bit today. So come and move. Meet us in all the ways that we need it. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, the cat's out of the bag. You already know we're talking about prayer today. We're talking about prayer. So if you're just joining with us, we've been in a series called Rhythms of Grace. We're looking at these habits or these uh, practices that Christians throughout history have built into the fabric of their lives to make their home in God to abide in God, to be formed, to look more and more like Jesus over time. And, you know, we kicked off the series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, three weeks ago, we talked about scripture. Two weeks ago, we talked about what it, or last week, we talked about what it means to be uh, connected to church covenant community. And today, what we're talking about is prayer. Now, here's, here's the problem. Can I just kind of go to the tension with you for a minute? The problem with prayer is that you have heard Honestly, God himself only knows how many sermons on prayer if you were born and raised in church. If, if, even if you're not in church, you just kind of intuitively know that this is something that God's people are supposed to do. And yet, if you're aware of, of, of reality, then you know that this is something that even the mention of prayer and thinking about it being a habit or a rhythm in your life is enough to create at least a little bit of a low-grade level of anxiety or a level of shame that kind of slowly washes over you, where some of you are probably even in your head thinking, yeah, I probably should pray more. And here's what's so fascinating. After being in ministry for 15 years, growing up in the church my entire life, I have never met one person in any theological uh, stream or denomination that has looked me in the eyes and said, hey, I I'm really awesome at prayer. Like, I basically consider myself to be a man or a woman of prayer. Like, I, there's a lot of things that I can't do, but I, I, am a, may, I have an, a phenomenal prayer life. Follow me and my prayer life as I follow Christ. I'm sure those people are out there. I've just never met them. I don't know who they are. If anything, most of us kind of approach prayer, and none of us are satisfied. We're all a little bit frustrated, and we're a little bit insecure at the nature of our prayer life. Like, if you could just broadcast it on a screen for everybody to see, we'd all be a little bit embarrassed, right? And here's often what I think is behind that. I think that there's a few haunting questions that we have at the core of prayer that creates some barriers for us. So let me just explore these with you briefly. Three haunting questions that I think that often you and I have, whether you articulate this or not. Number one, does prayer really work? Does it really work? 
And I think that in many ways, we've been helped by the rise of science and technology. I'm not someone who's against technology or science. I think those are gifts. They can be misused. But this has been an area where we've not necessarily been helped is in our prayer life. And here's what I mean. 500 years ago, if you're a farmer and it's not raining, what do you do? Well, if you believe in God, you pray for rain. And then it would rain and you would thank God that it rained. And now if you're a farmer today, if you pray for rain, which is a big if, you, you look at it and go, oh, it's just the weather pattern. Like you pull out your phone and I saw where the storm was blowing in from this part of the country to this part of the country. And you just kind of chalk everything up to, oh, it was just the weather pattern. Or imagine 500 years ago, you get sick and there's a lack of hospitals, a lack of medicine, a lack of options to get care. So you pray, you pray for healing. And, and then if God heals you, you turn to God and say, thank you for healing me. Now today, when you get a headache, you probably don't pray, but if you do pray, you'll pop some ibuprofen and the headache goes away and you go, oh, the ibuprofen worked. And my point is not to say that medicine is bad or technology or science are against us or evil. Inherently, they're not. But friends, we have been preconditioned to no longer receive prayer as a viable way of doing anything that we need. And often, the answers to prayer, we just chalk up to science and technology. Or another thing that happens, and I love this, but we're in a cultural moment where, for whatever reason, the, the, the realization that we are busted up people that probably have some childhood wounds from mom or dad, or maybe like we didn't have a perfect upbringing, and that's affecting the way I currently respond today, which by the way, if you're like, is that me? Yes, it's 100% you. That's happening to you too. So there's a rise in wanting to see therapists or godly counselors that can help you. I'm all for that. Praise God for that. Everybody should have a good counselor. In fact, maybe don't have a college savings fund for your kids. Maybe have like a therapy fund for them. That might get them further down the road. That's great, but what's happened is that often we talk to other people about God or other people about our problems rather than talking to God about God or God about our problems. We just have forgotten that he's a viable place for us to go. Another thing that often happens is just disappointment in prayer. Does prayer really work? I don't know because I've done all the things that you're supposed to do. I've fasted. I prayed with faith. I confessed any known and unknown sins. I started with adoration to warm God up, and then I prayed, and whatever I prayed for didn't come true. The person still died of cancer. The relationship still broke. I still lost the job. Disappointment in prayer is a real factor that is a barrier that keeps us from really seeking God in prayer. A second haunting question we have around prayer is, would God even want to listen to me? Like, let's be real. God, if he really does see who we are, he can't be that impressed, right? Like, if I just popped into his presence right now, is there going to be a delighted smile on his face to see me? Or is he going to be like, oh, you again. What do you, oh, fancy you to show up now. What is it that you're wanting now? And so this idea keeps us back from prayer often. Would God even want to hear from me? I'm not the type of person that's, I'm not a very good Christian. I don't obey the rules as much as I should, and I don't have a good prayer life. And there's all these things stacked against me. God would want nothing to do with somebody like me. And it holds you back from prayer. The third haunting question that we carry is, can we really even trust this God? I mean, friends, with the world the way it is, with chaos and school shootings and tsunamis and tornadoes and wildfires and all the brokenness that we have in our own families, in our own, in our own lives, is this really a God that hears and cares? 
And if he does hear and he does care, does he have the power to do anything about it? If he has the power to do stuff about it, how come he hasn't so often acted and responded in the ways that we would think he would? These are haunting questions that you and I have with prayer, and it's okay to acknowledge them. It's okay to talk about them. But here's the real question. How do we go from people who are haunted with these questions to people of prayer? How do we transition into people of prayer? Well, I don't know of a better place to take you. The best thing that I've ever heard on prayer from any book or any resource or anything in Scripture is what Jesus has to say about prayer in Matthew 6. Jesus' teaching on prayer is the most liberating teaching I've ever heard. In fact, let me say it like this. My hope today, and you can tell me later if I uh, was a success or a failure. My hope today is to give you the most honest, freeing, non-judgmental talk on prayer you've ever heard in your life. Like if at the end of the sermon, you're like, I think I should try to pray a couple of times. Like that would be a massive win for me and for my goal in the sermon. So let's jump in. Let's look at Jesus's teaching, his liberating teaching on prayer. And I love how he starts out. Look at chapter six, verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So I love what Jesus does here. He actually starts with how not to pray. Jesus is like, all right, let's talk about prayer. Here's some ground rules. Ground rules. Step one, don't pray like this. And his first thing that he says is don't pray to perform. The, the problem with the Pharisees and the hypocrites is that they love to pray, which is a good thing, but they love to pray so that they would be seen, which was a bad thing. They they had a disordered motive and desire behind their prayer life. In other words, prayer for them had nothing to do with God. You could slice God out of the equation altogether because all they cared about was that other people would look at them and go, wow, those people know how to pray. And Jesus is saying, when that's the reward that you want, wow, those people know how to pray, then you get what you want. End of story. You have your reward. So let me just free you for just a minute. It does not matter if you are a good prayer. In fact, I actually think that being a good prayer is completely irrelevant. Uh, I don't know if you're like this at your family gatherings, but anytime it's a holiday, Thanksgiving, whatever, and I'm around, they're like, well, here's the pastor. Let's have the pastor, you know, let's have the pastor pray because surely God really cares about my prayers more than the average person. And so I'm always having to pray. And I don't know if you're that way in your family. It's like, oh, here's the Christian. Let's have them pray for the meal. Friends, it doesn't matter if your prayer is clunky, short, long. It doesn't matter if it's coherent. Like, don't pray to perform. And Jesus is just freeing you of this thing of like, well, I don't know how. Don't worry about it. Don't even pray to perform. This is not directionally faced towards any person whatsoever. You're just actually focusing it and directing it towards God himself. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 7. I love this one. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't pray to perform. The second ground rule that Jesus gives us is don't pray with too many words. Let's just pause and think about that. This is not what I expected Jesus to say. I kind of think if Jesus is going to teach on prayer, he's going to be like, all right, step one, if you don't pray 15 minutes, I won't hear you. 
But actually what he says is, no, don't pray with too many words, right? When you pray, shorten your prayer just a little bit. This is fascinating. He says, these other people, they think that they're going to be heard for their many words that they pile on. That's actually not the case. When you pray, hey, don't use too many words. And here's why he says this. It's fascinating. is because in the first century, both the pagan culture and the religious Jewish culture was overburdened with prayer. Here's what I mean. The, the Gentile culture was essentially saying, hey, if you want to be heard by the deities, the God or the gods or whatever, then you need to chant and work yourself up into a frenzy and you need to be loud and boisterous and you need to say a lot of very convincing things. And if you really show the God or the gods that you mean it, they'll listen to you. That was the pagan way of understanding, and this is what Jesus is critiquing. The other thing that was happening was an overburdened Jewish culture around prayer. If you think that Frontline Church is annoying with our liturgy and the prayers that we pray together on Sundays, you would have hated being Jewish in the first century. Listen to the ways that they prayed. They had something called the 18 benedictions that they would pray not one time a day, but three times a day. 18 benedictions that you would go to go through three times a day. They had the Shema confessions that they would pray two times a day. They had table prayers, get this, that they would pray before the meal, during the meal, and after the meal was over. Hey man, I've got a four-year-old and that would make me want to rip my mustache off. If I had to, some of you are like, you should rip your mustache off. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, if, I had, if I had to pray before the meal, during the meal, and after the meal with my three kids, no thanks. Like, I would never pray ever again, right? This is just the normal. And then they had, on top of all of that, doxological prayers that they were supposed to pray at every opportunity. And here's what this resulted in. No one in the Jewish community, except for the Pharisees, was walking around going, we are great at prayer. They're all going, oh, they only did the 18 benedictions twice today. And I forgot one of them, so it was 17 benedictions. And I, I only did the Shema confession. One, like, and everyone was just not feeling great about the prayer life. And ironically, that didn't make them want to pray more. They're, they were overburdened with prayer. And Jesus here is saying, hey, a couple of ground rules. Don't pray too much. Not too many words. Lessen the words that you use. I love what Frederick Bruner says about this. Prayer is not an intelligence briefing for God. It is an intelligent conversation with God. You ever notice, and I'm not judging, but when you're with someone that they're praying and it's like they're filling, they're updating God. And by the way, God, this happened and this occurred. And prayer is not an intelligence briefing for God. It is an intelligent conversation with God. The paradox of prayer is that only when it is relieved of the necessity of much will people experience the freedom for much. When disciples know that they don't have to pray much, they will surprisingly desire to pray more. So Jesus starts out, hey, don't pray to perform, don't use too many words. So how do we pray? What's the right way to pray? Well, he's going to go on and he's going to tell us how to pray. And I want to give you four different ways. I want to kind of condense this prayer that we know that we're familiar with. I want to condense it into four different ways for us to pray. And I'm stealing this and modifying it from Tim Keller. Tim Keller wrote a great book on prayer called, you guessed it, Prayer. It's a very creative title. It's a phenomenal book. It's worth your time. But four ways to pray. So here's the first way. Pray for intimacy. This is finding God's face in prayer. 
Notice what Jesus says when he teaches us how to pray. Chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father. I just want to stop there for a minute. Did you catch the beauty of those two words? Pray then like this, our Father. There is not one other time in all of Scripture, not in the entire New Testament, not in any of the gospel accounts, where Jesus uses this phrase, our Father. Every time Jesus refers to God as Father, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every time that Jesus is referring to his Father in heaven, he always says, my Father and your Father. My Father and your Father. And the reason for that is because Jesus has a unique identity as the only begotten Son of the Father. There are no other sons of God in the sense of how Jesus is and his relationship to God the Father. He is unique in every way, unrepeatable. There's no one like him. And yet here in this verse, Jesus changes it and he says, our Father. This is grace upon grace upon grace. Here's what Jesus is doing here, friends. Jesus is grabbing you and I, busted up, broken and all, and he's saying, hey, it's not just that you can relate to God as a father, but now through my finished work on the cross and through my resurrection, you can actually have him as our father. The way that I relate to him and the way that he relates to me in Jesus, that's how he is going to see you and relate to you. Some of you are like, I'm not a very good prayer. Did you know that Jesus isn't actually, or the Father rather, is not looking at you, assessing your prayer life and deciding how he wants to relate to you out of your prayer life? He's looking at you through the finished work of Jesus, and he's deciding how to relate to you as exactly how he would relate to Jesus himself. Frederick Bruner says it this way. He says, when Jesus gives us the right to call his Father by the address our Father, he is passing on something of his own priceless relation to God. This is Jesus' greatest gift in the Lord's Prayer. Without much celebration in the simple text, believers are adopted into the family of God. And the simple word, our, is the joy of the whole gospel. We will never be able to calculate the honor that has been done us by, by being allowed to say, our Father. And I just think this would set you free if you could capture this reality that God is not this distant, removed, unfeeling, uncaring, very annoyed, very busy deity. He is a present, loving, compassionate Father. And He sees you. He knows your needs. He is coming towards you constantly. That's how you get to relate to Him. There are only three parables on prayer in the New Testament, as, as best as I can tell. There's only three parables on prayer in the entire New Testament. And did you know that each one of those three parables, the friend at midnight, the persistent widow, and the Pharisee and the tax collector parable, all three of those are Jesus teaching on prayer. And at the core of what he's doing is he's blowing up the bad view of God that we have and replacing it with a view of the Father. What that means is the greatest hindrance to you and I praying is actually our relationship to him as a father. And when you see that, it's like a floodgate that gets loosened where now you can talk with him about anything. There's a book called The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. And in that book, Kurt Thompson says these words that have stuck with me. He says, we all are born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. Did you know that 
core to what it is to be a human is that you are looking for a face, looking back at your face. And you do this in unhealthy ways. You put this on your spouse or your roommates or your friends and looking for someone to name you and define you. But core of what it is to be human is we're all looking for a face that is looking back at our face. And did you know that God actually created you and I before he even made us, he was looking for our face? And did you know that when he made us, he made us so that we would look for his face? And did you know this is why in Genesis chapter 3, the very first question in the entire Bible that's asked, even in the middle of sin, is asked by God where he says, where are you? This is not a geographical question. This is not God like, you know, not having you on find my friends or something. Like he knows where his people are. He knows where Adam and Eve was, but this is him reaching out saying, hey, where are you? I long for you. I want you. I'm looking. I'm searching. And in fact, you could condense the entire story of the whole Bible as a search and rescue story where the father comes looking for his lost people. And in Jesus, he has found us. And all prayer is, all prayer is, is just turning and looking for his face because he is looking for your face. That's true intimacy. When you know that it's not the fake version of you that Jesus died for, It's not the version of you that's cleaned up. It's not the version that has it all together. It's the real you that he loves. And it's when you take the real you and you turn to him that you realize that his face has been looking for you the whole time. That's intimacy. That's what prayer is. I love this from C.S. Lewis. He says, let us lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Do that today. Even maybe now. Take a minute. Close your eyes. Lay before him what's really in you, the anxiety, the fear, the needs, the worries, the, and just experience his fatherly care for you as an individual. Prayers of intimacy. Number two, prayers of awe. And this is praising his glory. I love what it goes on to say, what Jesus goes on to say in verse nine. He says, pray them like this, our father, where? In heaven hallowed be your name. This is a prayer that God's glory, his power, his majesty, his beauty would be celebrated, would be worshiped, that his reputation would be adored, that we would experience him in his fullness, that who he really is would be known and celebrated and sung about and felt. Hallowed be your name. And I love that Jesus says, your father in heaven, right? Our father in heaven. In other words, that we don't just have a father who is caring and compassionate, but is impotent, can't do anything. We have a father in heaven, meaning he is both tender and powerful. He is both uh, compassionate and present with us, but also able to act and with authority to respond to what we need. And this is so beautiful. It's actually uh, really important that Jesus says, pray then like this, and actually starting with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, before we get to give us this day our daily bread. Do you know why? Because the tendency of all humans is to turn whatever deity we might imagine in our heads into a vending machine, where the only relation that we have with him is like, I'm going to put in my quarter of prayer, and then I'm going to beep and get what I need, and that we turn God into that. And there's something about actually starting with awe, with celebration, with the truth and power and beauty of who he is that rightly orders everything else about the way that you pray. Your daily bread becomes a little bit more realistic, and your prayer life actually shifts and changes quite a bit. 
Now, this is fascinating, isn't it? That God himself is saying, uh, hey, in Jesus, I want you to relate to God this way. Pray that his name would be hallowed. Imagine if I said that. Imagine if I said that about me. Hey, guys, as uh, members of this church, I'd love for you to hallow my name as a pastor. I'd love for you to uh, hallow the name of Andrew Burkhart. I mean, imagine if you did that. That'd be so weird. And also, you should leave the church if any of our pastors ever say that. But for God, is it weird of him? Is it arrogant? Is it proud for God to say, hey, when you pray, I want you to celebrate me. I want you to hallow my name. I want you to honor me. I want you to sing my, tr- my true praises. Is that arrogant and proud of God? No. Do you know why? Because it's actually being tethered to that reality of who God is that we get to experience the fullness of joy itself. And when you and I get disconnected from God, it's not getting disconnected from God and finding life. It's getting disconnected from the life giver. And the tendency of every human heart is to actually move away from acknowledging God into starting to think that whatever your felt need is in this moment is your greatest need in life rather than God himself. Romans 1.21 is fascinating because Paul is describing the essence of human sin, and he says this about it. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Look at this. Or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you know that the, the opposite of adoration is divine plagiarism. It's cosmic plagiarism. It's where we don't honor God or tell him thank you for what he's done. And plagiarism is a big deal because what you're doing in plagiarism is stealing ideas and putting it on you saying, this was my idea and I'm going to take credit for something that I did not do. You and I are guilty of doing that with God left and right. You look at your job, you look at your station in life, you look at what has worked out in in your world or whatever, and it's easy for us, even when things are really, really good, especially when things are really good, to forget God, to forget to tell him thank you and just assume that we somehow deserve and have earned all the things that you and I have. That's the essence of sin. And rather than tethering you to reality, It actually tethers you into a fantasy world. Prayer is the thing that anchors you back in to where you realize, man, everything I have, everything that I am is because of the goodness and the grace of God. I love this. Everything about prayer is circumstantial except for prayers of all. Here's what I mean. Like we pray prayers of confession. Why? Because we sin. We pray prayers for healing. Why? Because we're sick or someone we love is sick. We pray prayers of intercession because our world is broken. But this is the only prayer that it doesn't matter if you're feeling good or bad. It doesn't matter if you're feeling more alive or not alive. It doesn't matter if things are going well or not or what's happening in your world. You can always pray prayers of adoration because God is always God and he never changes. So it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. This is a prayer that you can pray no matter what's happening in your circumstances. So here's a question. What would it look like for you and I just to develop a habit of adoration? What would it look like to do what C.S. Lewis describes where we allow one's mind to run back up the sunbeam to the sun? Where we realize that all that we have, all that we're receiving is a gift. Sometime later today, you're going to eat a meal. Man, what would it look like while you're eating that meal to pause, to look around, look at who you're with, look at what you're eating, and just say, man, God, I deserve hell. And here I am eating food. Here I am with people that I love and people that love me. This is a gift. 
right? Tomorrow, you're going to blow stuff up and take the day off and have fun and do... What would it look like if at some point tomorrow you just allowed a smile to land on your face and you went up the sunbeam to the sun and said, this is because you're good and you give good gifts and we don't deserve this and just cultivate a a culture of adoration in your heart. More and more and more, I'm encountering people in our world and I think because they're so tied into the 24-7 news cycle and their own social media accounts, they are absolutely enraged or growing in their cynicism. What would it look like for the people of God to not grow in our cynicism or our outrage, but to grow in adoration? Not in cheesiness, not like painting the smile on and having the Caleb like positive encouraging, blah, blah, blah. No, that's stupid. I'm saying, I'm saying to be deep as followers of Jesus, that no, no matter what's happening here, we have a Father in heaven. Amen? Prayers of awe. Number three, The third way to pray is prayers of intercession. This is asking for his help. Look at what Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 10. When you pray, pray like this. Your kingdom come, Father. Your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Or some translations say sins, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. There's so much here, but just briefly, what I want to point out to you is that prayers of intercession have a way of shaping and forming you so that you're not constantly operating out of your most base, dysfunctional desires as a human being. Here's what I mean. When you and I learn over time to pray your kingdom come, what we're not doing is giving way to outrage. How can you give way to outrage when prayer is on your lips of, your kingdom come. Do you know what causes outrage? It's when you see something in the world and then you disconnect God from the equation and you go, right? That's what happens. But it actually, hey, can can I let you in on a little secret? Tweeting does nothing. Posting on social media does nothing. You might, so maybe it virtue signals, but outside of that, it does nothing. You are not accomplishing anything. You're not changing anyone's life. You are doing no good thing because you sent something out into the ether world of social media. But when you pray, your kingdom come, something is actually happening. Something is being done in the heavens. God the Father is responding and working and interacting with our world. That's why I would just like delete all social media, pray your kingdom come. Can we just make it our goal? Maybe I can't get us to do that. Can we make it our goal for the rest of the year to post less and pray more? Post less and pray more. Pray about what's causing you outrage. That's where change actually happens. Here's another one. Your will be done. What kind of prayer is that? Well, that's like very anti-American, That's very like, you know, rise and triumph of the modern self. I want to do what I want to do. And here's the gift of this prayer. Learning every day to pray, Father, your will be done today. Every day I wake up and there's a civil war between his will and my will. This prayer is teaching me to be less animalistic and less broken and disordered and disordered. I'm learning to respond to the Father saying, Father, I actually want your vision for my life today. 
I want your heart, your will. I want your sexual parameters today. I want your vision for my marriage. I want your vision for my singleness. I want your heart for my parenting. Father, I'm, I, I want your heart for generosity. Not my will, but your will. Your kingdom, your will. That's what I want. Father, your will at every level is what I'm after. It, it curbs you, changes you, forms you into people who are different. Or what about this one? Give us this day our daily bread. When you intercede, here's what's crazy. You're supposed to intercede for things that you and I just take for granted. Like if you're here today and you're like, I don't know if I'm gonna eat lunch or dinner or breakfast or lunch tomorrow, then please talk to us and I wanna help you. We have resources for you as a church. But virtually everybody in this room is just assuming that we're gonna eat lunch today. We're just assuming that we're gonna eat dinner today. We're gonna wake up tomorrow and have food again. And yet Jesus is saying, what does it look like to live in dependency? Where even on things that we assume we'll have, we pause and go, hey, Father, hey, would you give me lunch today? I, I, I need lunch today, and that comes from you. Hey, Father, I, I need things that are not food-related. I need, like, relational things. I need emotional things. I need spiritual things and physical things. Would you just meet me in my need today? It curbs this way of living where you just disconnect yourself from God and go about your life like a robot. We could go on, but we don't have time. Prayers of intercession. Here's the last and final thing I want you to see. The last way to pray is habits. And this is practicing daily prayer. Notice what Jesus assumes about our relationship to prayer in Matthew 6. I love this. Look at verse six, verse, or chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, verse 6, but when you pray, verse 7, and when you pray, Verse 9, pray then like this. You can't read those first, there's just a few verses there and not realize that Jesus is just assuming that we're going to be living in this daily habit of prayer, right? Hey, when you pray, and you're going to pray and pray and pray and pray. I mean, he's just assuming that we're going to do it. And throughout church history over the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of different ways that people have seen this. But the most common way, even though there's been disagreement more or less at times, is that every Christian has, generally speaking, had morning prayer and evening prayer. Morning prayer and evening prayer. They wake up, and before you reach for your phone, you're reaching to, for the face of God in prayer. Evening prayer. Before you go to bed, you pray. Or if you're like me, you attempt to pray and very quickly fall asleep. Morning prayer and evening prayer. And so I just want to invite you, what would it look like to build that habit of prayer in your life? Where you just, every morning, before you reach for your phone, you reach for the face of God. And every night, you actually end your evening with prayer. How do we do that? Well, let me just quickly give you a couple of things to consider. Pray what you've got. Pray what you've got. One of my favorite quotes on prayer comes from John Chapman, and he said this, pray as you can, not as you can't. I love that. Some of you are like, yeah, but I can't pray for an hour. Well, my gosh, then don't. Well, I, I can't pray all night. Well, then that would be a horrible idea. Don't try to pray all night. Yeah, but I can't come up after the service and lay hands on people and pray for them. Then don't do that. My goodness, how can you pray? Can you pray for five minutes? Pray like that. Can you pray for 30 seconds? Pray like that. Can you pray for just a minute while you're driving into work? Pray like that. Don't pray as you can't. Pray as you can. How can you pray? It doesn't matter if you're a really good prayer. It doesn't matter if you're like a Navy SEAL prayer. That's not the goal, but just how can you pray? Pray like that. Pray as you can, not as you can. Number two, start small because that's a really big win. 
Richard Foster says it this way. He says, if prayer is not a fixed habit with you, instead of starting with 12 hours of prayer-filled dialogue, single out a few moments and put all your energy into them. I would suggest that in the beginning, it is wise to strive, look at this, for uneventful prayer experiences. Besides, if we're unaccustomed to it, just slipping away into the presence of God can be so exotic and fresh that it delights us enormously. Hey, if you're like, I just prayed and I didn't feel anything, that's okay. Hey, I just prayed and Jesus didn't enter into the room and physically make me coffee that morning. That's okay. I don't expect that that's going to happen. I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't this amazing. Who cares? Just start small. That's a really big win. If you don't know where to start, let me give you a few helpful tools that have really helped me. Uh, my brother-in-law told me about two of these. I'm, I'm not an app guy, if, if you haven't picked up on it. Like, I'm, I don't really care about apps. I'm not like, ooh, I found an app for this. I don't care about that. But truly, this app is really helpful. So this is called Lectio 365. And they have another one called Lectio Families that we'll show you in just a minute. And this has completely reshaped my prayer life. It has a morning prayer and an evening prayer. And you can do one of two ways with it. You can literally pull it up and read through the prayers. It'll have scripture that is attached to it and historical prayers that Christians have prayed throughout history and different like min miniature devotionals that shape the way that you pray. Or you can press play and listen with someone from a beautiful British accent to just read the whole thing to you. That's usually what I opt for. It's got this really great music in the background. Every single morning, this is what I do. It has completely reshaped the way that I start my day in prayer. It will take you five or six minutes to do it. It's fantastic. There's another one, this one right here, Lectio for Families. We use this during uh, Lent. We use this with our kids at, uh, during Advent. This was just like the way that we did family worship as a family at night. We'd gather together, we'd press play, and then we'd pause and talk about it and pray and it's amazing, you guys. Download this app. It will really, really help. It's been really, really helpful for me. And then um, in addition to that, by the way, I, I tried to do the evening one, but every time my wife and I are laying in bed, she'll hit play and like 20 seconds go by and I'm, I'm passed out. But it's a good way to, I'd rather fall asleep to prayer than fall asleep, you know, with whatever else. So try it out. Uh, the, the other way I would, I would uh, point you to is take what Jesus literally says here in the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, pray like this. Pray the, the, the Lord's Prayer. Just pray that. Literally pray it word for word. Or pray lines of it and use those lines as a springboard to pray for very specific things. Your kingdom come. Okay, let's, let's pray for that. Give us this day our daily bread. Let me pray for my needs. It'll take you 30 seconds to pray the Lord's Prayer. Just pray that. And I think that that counts. Here's the last thing, and I'll be done. Pray where you are. Pray where you are. Don't try to escape your life thinking that God can be found somewhere else. God is found in the mundane. God's presence is with you in the least likely of places. Pray where you are. You know the room that Jesus refers to that, hey, go to your room and pray in Matthew 6? The specific word that's used there in the Greek is a supply room. It had tools and animals and feed and other supplies in it. It's similar to what you might think of as your garage. In other words, the place doesn't matter. Any place can become a holy place when you pray. So whether it's your car, your shower, the bathroom, doesn't matter. Just offer God what you got and offer him wherever, wherever you are. Just begin to pray. Susanna Wesley is a really powerful example of this. And I think that her prayer life 
and her reputation has often been kind of reduced to like, Susanna Wesley was so busy that she would stand in the kitchen and put the apron over her head and pray. Isn't that great? We should be like her. But her story is so much more fascinating. Here's the full story. Susanna Wesley married a pastor and they could not get along at all. They disagreed on everything from money to politics. They had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. Her husband often left her to raise the children alone for long periods of a time. One of their children was crippled. Another couldn't speak until he was nearly six years old. She herself was desperately sick most of her life. There was often little or no money for food. She, she and her whole family were plagued by debt. Her husband was once thrown into the debtor's prison because the debt was so high and he couldn't pay it. Twice the homes they lived in were burned to the ground. They lost everything that they owned on two occasions, and it was assumed that someone in the church did it because they hated her husband's preaching so much. Man, I know that some of you are not big fans of me, but thank you for not burning my house down. My wife and I really appreciate it. Uh, someone slit their ca- the cow's udders so that they couldn't have any milk. Someone killed their dog and burned their flax field. But when she was young, Susanna said to the Lord that for every hour she spent in entertainment, she would give him an hour in prayer and in the word. And taking care of the house, raising kids, made that commitment nearly impossible to fulfill. As you can imagine, she had no time for entertainment. She, this was like she, she would garden, milk the cows, school the children, teach them Latin and Greek, manage the household, and on and on and on. So eventually she made a deal with God that she could only spend two hours a day and prayer and worship. And here's how she did it. She told her children that when the apron was over her head, she was not to be bothered because she would be talking to God. She would kick off her shoes, stand in the kitchen with the apron on over her head, and speak with God, find his face. And her apron became a holy place. It was a closet, a secret place where she could go away with God. And she could have never guessed, friends, that she would raise John Wesley and Charles Wesley. John Wesley was one of the greatest revivalists in all of church history. He preached to almost a million people in his lifetime, and at one point preached to a crowd of 30,000 people at one time without a microphone. Charles Wesley was even more impressive, in my opinion, wrote over 9,000 hymns, many of which we still sing even to this day in this church. And once he was asked, who, was the, who had the greatest spiritual impact on you? And his reply was, my mother. My point is this, friends, pray where you are because you have no idea how powerful and active God is when he hears and responds to your prayers.